Hello, and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, poet and playwright, Mark Anthony Rossi. In this, our fifth year, we continue to explore the meaning of being an artist in an ever-changing digital world. Now, without further ado, here's your host. Hi, folks, and welcome back to Strength to be Human. I'm your host, uh, poet and playwright, Mark Anthony Rossi. Another wonderful interview segment. I know I always say this, but it's the truth. It's not easy to get people on between scheduling and, and just the, the fear of, 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 I guess, talking about yourself. Of course, some writers are even introverted, incredibly enough, and, and they don't really, really do this. But you, you want to keep at it because I still think that as many as the standalone shows I do, it's also relevant to be able to hear from what other people have to think. All right, so we got a, a wonderful guest here, Elizabeth Mathiason. She's a, a computational um, biologist. I guess that means that they count frogs or something. And uh, she has been writing for quite some time. We're very happy to have her uh, being uh, published in Aerial Chart. She's a, a really wonderful, gifted poet, uh, interesting person that's also very musical and, and, and artistic and, and other crafts as well. All right, Elizabeth, thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, I love the idea of counting frogs, but uh, my research is actually in hummingbirds. Yeah, I know. Uh, I know you mentioned that before, but I kept saying I can't get any hummingbird jokes. I'm gonna have to go with the frogs. I know. I know frogs. I I do. I do know somebody who counts frogs though. So I'm I'm frog adjacent. All right. Well, that's cool. I know it's important because they say that um, sometimes one of the signs of the healthy environment is how well the frogs are doing in it. If they're dead Absolutely. or they got six heads and you might have a problem with your radiation or something. So, all right. There's, there's a biologist at my university who, uh, who studies the songs of frogs and the frequencies of, of their songs and mating calls to, uh, to see how the environment is doing around them. And interestingly enough, that's an indicator of, of the environmental state also, but my work is actually, uh, so computational biologist is just kind of a fancy way of saying, I don't really do field research. Uh, I work in hummingbirds, but I don't actually touch the hummingbirds. I got to touch a hummingbird once uh, to, to learn how to handle them. We, we do have hummingbirds on campus in, um, we, we, you know, there are other researchers who, uh, are working on actually uh, doing experiments with the birds themselves. I was fortunate enough, and I and I want to give a plug to one of my mentors here, uh, who was kind enough to let me use her data set. I'm I'm actually I'm a data scientist, so it, really what I do is statistics. I do a lot of coding, uh, and I do a lot of statistics, and I'll talk about later how I literally never could have seen that coming, um, but. Uh, Dr. Lisa Tell at UC Davis is a professor of uh, veterinary medicine, and her passion project involves uh, microchipping hundreds of hummingbirds over the course of several years here since, uh, I believe, two, well, my data set goes back to 2016. She originally would ban them, and that's a pretty common practice with bird research, but she got the idea that uh, she could microchip them the way that we microchip cats and dogs, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it involves capturing the birds and uh, sort of strapping them into this little foam block 
and using a 16 gauge needle to insert um, a little microchip that has their information on it. They all have a little ID and they um, are genetically sexed, which means that they take a feather sample and they use their DNA to uh, determine whether they're male or female. And, uh, you know, measurements are taken, their weight, their wings are me measured, you know, they, you can tell um, <clears throat> if they are uh, hatch year or after hatch year, that's about how close you can get with their age. They can, you know, kind of get at a, the vague age. Um, and, and then they set them free. And there are two sites in California, one's in Northern California in winters, which is close to Davis. And there's another site in Beverly Hills, and they have these specially equipped uh, hummingbird feeders with RFID chip readers on them. And the hummingbirds fly in, and they feed, and every single time they fly through the little reader, it reads their microchip. So my data set is 2 million rows of uh, bird feeding times, basically. <laughs> Uh, so, so I get to tease out all of the patterns and I'm, I'm looking at the differences in, in foraging habits in hummingbirds, um, between, you know, males and females and the, the species. So it, it seems like very dry work, but it's actually really creative and interesting. You, you have to ask so many interesting questions. Um, I never really saw myself drawn to this. My, my background is actually in physiology. But uh, but I got sort of sucked into this through an interesting confluence of events where I made a decision in my life at the beginning of the pandemic to just sort of lean into whatever opportunities presented themselves. And and, and here I am. Wow. That is definitely <laughs> the first hummingbird person I have ever spoke to. That's yeah. for sure. And, you know, for a hummingbird person, <laughs> people are people hear that I, you know, work in hummingbirds. And um, I'll, I'll most always have a hummingbird story to tell me. And I, I love these little animals. I really do. You know, they're more insect than bird almost. Um, and, and they're the sweetest things. They're actually, um, they're, they're actually jerks. If we want to be really honest, they're, they're complete jerks to each other. Uh, <laughs> they're very cute, but terrible, terrible behavior. Um uh, <laughs> So um, they always have a hummingbird story to tell me, and I, I'm learning more about hummingbirds now than I knew before I decided to go into studying hummingbirds. Um, it's it's the data science aspect that I was familiar with. So I've actually used data science before, too. In my undergrad, I worked in a pollinator lab, so I'm really interested in ecology and, and nature and um, what I can learn about, you know, saving vulnerable species. My lab was, um, I, I'm going to plug my, my old PI, Dr. Gretchen Laboon at San Francisco State University. She's got a great project called the Great Sunflower Project. And if anybody wants to help save the bees, you can be a citizen scientist in the Great Sunflower Project. You can go out to your yard, you pick a couple of flowers, and then you count the number of pollinators that land on it in a certain amount of time. And then you just go to greatsunflower.org and put in your observation and boom, you have, uh, you have helped pollinator research immensely. So that well, was my former project. And, and I'm glad you brought that up because when you think about bees and you think about what those folks are trying to do and, and others who want to help them, I think the general public can see some connections. They don't have to be finding scientific to understand that bees are important to us. But when it comes to hummingbirds, what are you actually learning from them that, that is important? Hummingbirds are um, 
they're also pollinators. They're important pollinators. Oh, they are. Okay. Uh, almost all of them are nectar fed. Yes. Uh, they're also, uh, I'm not, I'm not sure if they necessarily count as a keystone species because so many of them are migratory, but, uh, their health is, is definitely, um, an indicator of how we're doing. Uh, the other thing that's interesting about them and the reason that this is under the umbrella of physiology and behavior is because metabolically they're such interesting little creatures, uh, they're able to do something called torpor, uh, which is something that bears actually also do. Um, we say that bears hibernate. They don't technically hibernate. They go into torpor um, in the, the winter. And hummingbirds can do the same thing. Normally, their body temperature is about 106 degrees Fahrenheit. And they're able to drop it down into the 50s when they go torpid um, in order to conserve energy. So their, their energy metabolism is really fascinating and it makes them an interesting model organism to study metabolics. Uh, but, but I'm studying their behavior. <laughs> so oh. we have, we have other researchers who are studying, you know, how they conserve energy and how they disperse heat. And, uh, you know, so there's a, there's a lot to learn about, uh, metabolic systems in hummingbirds. Um, so they're, they're very valuable to science that way. Um, and observing them in the wild is really interesting as well. They're they're important species for pollination, and uh, you can you can usually tell how an ecosystem is doing by um, the amount of flowers that are attracting hummingbirds. Wow, yeah, it just never occurred to me that that they could be that important. So that, that's good to know. I see them come in my yard now and then, but and we got a little feeder because the kids love to to watch them. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so we I always enjoy that, but. Other than that, I never thought anything other than the the special way they seem to fly. That that's what seems to make them very unique to amongst all the other. Yes, birds. their their wings are, are more insect like than bird like. They they don't actually have the the joint in the wings. It's sort of a wrist, I guess. Um, but they have a a straight wing. So uh, the, the length of the wing is called the cord, and I'm actually doing a study right now studying how their cord length, the length of their wing from shoulder to tip, uh, correlates with their body mass and uh, how uh, species differences happen. You know, that we've noticed that the Allen's hummingbird in Southern California has kind of short wings, and we've noticed that the Anna's hummingbird that's more prevalent in Northern California has longer wings and does it have to do with the food that they eat does it have to do with um, mating displays i don't know yet so there's, there's a lot to find out wow yeah so that's that's a little bit about my research but yeah it's interesting being a, a scientist and a, an artist but i find that they the two marry so well um you know data science seems dry but it's actually um it's actually an exploration and it involves asking a ton of creative questions and looking at uh, a collection of data with a curious creative eye and, uh, and teasing out the secrets there. So I, I find that um, it really tickles the creative side of my brain. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not really terribly sur surprised about it because I can see how they can be complementary, but also we know from Leonardo da Vinci's uh, sketchbooks where he made it really clear on, on how he was literally uh, working on something that would be uh, scientific, 
but it also could be uh, creative as well. He seemed to have gotten back and forth with that, and almost like each part of him was inspiring the other part. And you can literally mm -hmm. see that in the notebook. So when you can see that outright with your own eyes, and you realize that, yeah, there is a question. And I don't know if it's just about uh, being fearless in inquiry, or if it's just about, you know, um, I, I want to be curious, because the more curious I am, the more I can expand my, my mind, and, and maybe even my... Uh, my sensibilities and, and therefore be more open to things. Uh, but uh, I, I'm not surprised that there is a connection. But the funny thing is, is on paper, it doesn't always seem that way. Because if you think about it, um, science is always about the quantitative stuff. But oftentimes yeah. creativity can be very gray and not very scientific. We do have to be very dry in our writing, unfortunately. We have to be very precise in the language that we use. And... Uh, you know, doing science writing is, is an art form in itself because you have to find a way to say things in uh, this extremely precise way. Uh, you know, there, there are conventions that we follow, of course, and there's always the argument between do we use the active voice or the passive voice and how much of a personal touch can we put on this paper? But um, the, the, the type of writing that we do, you know, it is, it is creative and that you have to find creative ways to just, I mean, <laughs> for example, um, you know, I've kind of seen a, a joke among biologists running around about, you know, how you would write, you know, the, the mouse escaped from the, the basket so that we had to chase it around the lab, you know, how, how do we find a way to put that into a paper in a really creative, but dry way? <laughs> oh, boy. Um, you know, having to write about the, the, the foibles of doing field research um, are are really entertaining. <laughs> you, you wouldn't know it from reading the papers, but, uh, you know, there's one of the researchers in my lab. He's a great, great guy who just got into UC Davis and I'm so proud of him. Um, he's going to go to veterinary school. Uh, his research has been on um, looking at how much water vapor hummingbirds lose through their uh, mouth versus their skin. So they, they do kind of evaporative cooling. They can't really sweat. Birds don't have sweat glands. But uh, he, most of his research has been tied up in uh, trying to make little tiny masks for the hummingbirds, uh, which don't want to wear tiny masks at all. And... Uh, it's it's been about a year of trying different ways of getting hummingbirds to wear these little masks so that we can catch the water vapor that that they exhale and uh it's it, i mean i i would say it's been entertaining i feel bad for the guy <laughs> but uh, uh it has been really interesting to see, you know, how much science, it seems like such a simple question, you know, we should be able to rig up something that catches the water vapor, but no, it's like a matter of taking a Dremel and cutting up, I don't know, syringes and, you know, all these different uh, household items to, to see if you can get a hummingbird to keep its head in there. Uh, and, and so far the answer has been no. <laughs> the answer has been no hummingbirds don't like masks or hats. Um, so they're, they're trying little yep. backpacks next. You hear that, folks? You attack the allies at work, okay? <laughs> so, so if you, yeah, just just leave the hummingbirds hatless um, in your yard. <laughs> just They're just for watching, not for putting hats on. Um, 
they'll they'll they won't appreciate it uh so yeah so field research is really interesting you know I, I i don't really do field research myself i get to to look at what happened when people do have done the research the field research um and and i get to see where they may have had problems i get to notice the gaps in the data uh where things obviously went haywire uh during the field research so that's that's pretty interesting for me uh, but yeah I'm, I'm really excited to be doing this research um it's it's just this beautiful blend of science and creativity and ecology and um, i feel so connected to the natural world and it's getting harder and harder in the bay area to do that so um it's really awesome to just be able to connect even just with the nature on campus uh for example you know going and changing the hummingbird feeders involves this beautiful walk around campus uh to to change those feeders once a week and we're actually pulling the feeders in right now because there's an avian flu outbreak so if you've got hummingbird feeders out now might be a good time to pull them um just 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 a hint for the public but uh yeah in, in san francisco you know we we have these little spots of nature and of course we're surrounded by the santa cruz mountains and the the Portola Redwoods and uh, Mira Woods and have all these beautiful places to go. But when you're in urban wasteland, um, it's it's kind of an interesting way to feel connected to nature. Hmm. It really is. I, I like that because I have this knowledge already of, of a little bit of your background. When I'm reading the, the, the writing, particularly the, the poetry, you can't really feel the scientific connection. And I don't mean that in a bad way, because if someone can still do that and be creative and talk about that, there's nothing wrong with that. I think that would just be just as interesting. But your writing seems to be so far removed from that experience. I don't know if that's on purpose or not, but that's how I read it. Well, you know, I've I've got um, I have other writing that's a little bit more. Uh, nature-based but the the one that was published uh first the the burdens we place upon the children um it actually is really tied to nature it's it's a memory of mine um and i don't know do is shall we shall we talk about that sure sure why not at this point <laughs> yeah as long um, as you don't feel it's too much sure no no um it so what the poem is about um, I don't know. Should I should I read it first or if if you like because it's not it's not that long that you couldn't read it on the show we we will forget what it was about it's it's short. Sure, it is it is pretty short. Yeah, most of my poetry is pretty brief. Uh, so yeah, so this one's called the burdens we place upon the children, and I'll just read it for reference. Uh, it stormed one night so hard that the trailer roof rattled, like to come right off. I stared out the window of the bedroom shared with my sleeping brothers. I imagined the porch awning sagging, groaning with the weight of angry rain. We need it so much, had said my grandma. We are so dry, had said my grandma, the drought dirt cracking beneath her cracked heels. But still that night I prayed beside my sleeping brothers for the rain to stop, stop before it carried the trailer away. I prayed, afraid, and immediately tasted guilt. We need it so much, I whispered. We are so dry, I whispered. So I laid up till dawn beside my sleeping brothers as the wind rattled the trailer, praying and praying for rain. And uh, so that that poem is a memory of mine 
of uh, having recently learned about climate change as a child. My grandmother um, was a gardener and I grew up in Gilroy, California. And, you know, we've had uh, years of historic drought here in California. And I remember learning about it as a kid. And the poem is about being robbed of the experience of having a childish fear by having the rather adult knowledge of uh, of the danger that we're in placed in your mind so that so that I, I felt guilty being afraid of something that I think is very natural for a child to be afraid of. You know, a, a thunderstorm with high winds is scary, especially especially living in a trailer. I did I spent several years of my life in a trailer as my father built a house on the property that my parents had bought. Um, and, you know, that night it, it did feel like it was going to blow away. And uh, I remember feeling so guilty wishing the rain would stop and then reversing my prayers. You know, I, I was, I was raised Catholic. So of course, you know, we, we prayed, but then we also felt guilt about things. And, uh, and, and I just remember lying awake thinking, oh no, I prayed for the rain to stop. And if it stops, it's going to be my fault. And then we're going to have this drought, uh, continue. So I, I tried to, you know, do a 180 with my prayers and instead prayed for the rain to continue against all of my, uh, fears, basically. Um, so, you know, the, the nature and especially, uh, climate change have been on my mind since I was a kid and I feel a lot of compassion for the kids that are growing up right now who, who really have it in their face. Um, you know, as we have these unprecedented floods here in California and all this strange weather and, um, fire season, you know, there was the day of the orange sky in San Francisco that my kids got to witness uh, during the pandemic here. I'm not sure if the listeners are familiar with that, but the smoke was so bad in the San Francisco Bay Area one day that we went outside and it was as dark as night. It was this, the sky was orange. It was the eeriest, uh, strangest day that I remember wow. <clears throat> pretty much ever. Um, so, you know, I was reflecting on my own memories of, of growing up with sort of the burgeoning knowledge of that of the changes going on, but not really understanding the full extent of how it was going to affect me as an adult and, and thinking about my, my own children and their own childhood experiences and the, the fears that they should be allowed to have uh, being replaced with rather adult concerns, I guess. Uh, so uh, they're, they're, there are a couple of, you know, the, the other two poems that, that were published by Ariel Chart, and thank you so much. I really appreciate um, the opportunity to publish with you. This is my first time. I am, a, I guess, not a new writer, but uh, new to be published. Um, the right. Grieving Garden and The Long View are, I think, connected to nature uh, in their own ways also. Um, most Most of my work does seem to be uh in in kind of an abstract way i guess 
it's right. not I'm not necessarily explicitly writing about flowers and and bees and and that to me that was a pleasant change and I, I don't mean that to, to ridicule some of the more traditional nature poetry but you know quite frankly I, I don't really know how many more descriptions we can have of a tree. I think we might have covered it <laughs> in the past 200 years, you know. So it's good to have somebody that brings some other elements to that. And I think that's important for writing because that's how it, it grows and that's how it becomes relevant to another generation because, you know, you only could write something about a blue fish or a green bird or something. But, you know, if you can mix it into something else, it, it, to me, I, I think it gives it another another life almost another dimension yeah i i think that you know and i i love i love poetry that explicitly talks about nature it i think that you know people who have a connection to it and they feel it in their bones and they want to express the beauty of it um i i know it's been done but um i i haven't really gotten tired of it but for me uh it it feels so intertwined with everything that I feel, you know, there's, there's always sort of a, a metaphor for whatever I'm feeling or experiencing that I can connect to nature. Uh, and I, I think I would rather talk about those experiences in terms of nature rather than, than just describing nature itself. Um, I've got, you know, a lot of poetry about, I, I wrote one about my seasonal depression recently and, uh, you know, talking about the, the angle of the light feeling too steep for this time of day. And, uh, the, sorry, there is a fire truck going past my house right now. I hope my microphone's not picking that up. I live next to a fire station, feel very safe, but also very loud. Um, so, you know, writing, writing poems that refer to feelings, you know, the feelings that we have as humans in terms of natural phenomena or as they relate to natural phenomena and kind of connecting ourselves to the cycles of nature because we are really intrinsically connected is a lot more interesting to me, I think. And, and it's, it's all kind of one and the same in my mind. Yeah, to me, it makes a, it makes a lot of sense. And I... Also, and um, that's another, I guess, development of the the idea of leaning into things, and that's uh, it. Kind of brings me to the the whole creative journey. Uh, I used to compulsively create art uh, as a kid and a teenager, and then uh, there was a relationship that I had in my uh, early twenties, early to mid twenties. And it was, you know, obviously not meant to be, that's not the, that's not the person that I ended up marrying. Um, I met my husband when I was 31 and, uh, we've been together for almost 11 years now. Uh, we actually got married just over two years ago. So, uh, we were, we were, uh, didn't really see a reason to get married for a long time, but, finally did it, you know, had a, a very adorable pandemic wedding, but the, the person that I was with in my twenties, it was, it was really interesting. He was, he was actually an actor and an opera singer and I was this compulsive art creator. Um, and I had, you know, I was playing guitar and I had started writing songs back then. Um, and we both lost our creativity in this relationship 
completely. Uh, the entire time we were together, neither of us did the creative things that really drove us. It was interesting. I, I never saw him in a play. He actually used to sing opera, never, never saw him perform. Um, and I stopped creating art myself. And so I think that was a really good sign that it wasn't meant to be and we weren't bringing out the best in each other. And then, uh, then after that ended, it took a while for me to really start making what I would call art again. Uh, I, I did pick up my instruments again. Um, I, I played guitar and then I actually taught myself uh, ukulele when I got COVID at the beginning of the pandemic. I, I had this weird side effect with COVID where my hands got all floppy and weird um, and I wasn't able to do bar chords anymore. And so I decided to use the opportunity to teach myself a new instrument, um, which I just love and I play all the time now. And uh, I should honestly pick my guitar up a lot more <laughs> than I do uh, just because I, I enjoy ukulele so much. You know, four fingers, four strings, it's easier to play. Uh, and and I find it very cute. It's it's different. Um, it's different than most of the instruments that I, that I see people uh, play. Um, is it really apart from a, a guitar, or is it really just a baby guitar? It's not a baby guitar. It's um it's a four stringed instrument. Um you know it works it works roughly the same way as a guitar. Um I actually have a tenor uke. Um I don't have the the little soprano which you know a, a, every ukulele is meant for anyone to play you know very large people can play a soprano uke. Um I am a very tall person though and I again being used to playing guitar I find a larger instrument a lot more comfortable to play and the tenor is a good deal larger than than the regular typical little soprano uke. Um so I have this beautiful Cordoba um, it's an electric acoustic and um, I love to play it. And then, and as soon as I started playing it, uh, I started writing songs at the beginning of the pandemic. And I have about an album's worth of songs now that are very poorly recorded. I'm just now learning to use audacity and, and record my music. Huh. Um, but it, music is really about poetry for me too. You know, the, the process of writing a song is very much about the lyrics rather than necessarily the melody. They both sort of start coming to me at the same time. Uh, and I use just the experimental process that's really similar to when I write a poem, um, you know, starting to play with combinations of words and play with combinations of chords. And I'll have a general idea of the idea that I want to express and it'll evolve as the, as the song progresses. Um, and I, I write about all sorts of different topics. You know, I have one song called St. Jude, the oft forgotten, which was, I wrote about my grandmother who had disclosed to me that, um, her, her biggest gripe in life was that she was Catholic and wasn't allowed to use birth control. And so she had to remain distanced from her husband, my grandfather, uh, in order to keep the count of children that she had down to two. <laughs> And so that's that's a song that I wrote about her. And uh, but I I've written love songs for my husband and I've written, uh, you know, I wrote a song about it called Survivor Guilt that was about surviving COVID at the beginning of the pandemic and kind of not really knowing why, um, you know, having this this guilt while people are dying. Um, 
why why did I get off? Well, I, I don't think I got off easy. I had long COVID for months, but, um, you know, so, so it's a whole variety of topics, but it really is about expressing ideas rather than necessarily just the melodies and the music for me. Um, so that's a, that, that's a little bit about the process there. So I think that um, I, I, I put my music and poetry into the same basket as far as self-expression goes. That's definitely a different take on, on, on music because when you speak to musical people, many times they're not talking about the, the lyrical aspects, which can you know come across a lot easier on a podcast for, for listeners uh, more interested in writing in general. A lot of times mm-hmm. they are talking about the musical aspects, of it, which many people don't really know unless they're playing music, that music is a type of a math, that, that notes and tones are important, and how some people can tell the difference, and how they can connect certain moods to certain things, and that's where the idea of blues comes from, which is a mm-hmm. kind of a type of depression. You know, so, um, and I've heard this sort of thing before, but it, it's a much harder to, to get to grasp your mind around that versus someone that's talking about the composition of a song is similar to the composition of a poem. I, I, I kind of like that. I wish we hear more of that. Yeah, it, it really is for me. I'm, I would not consider myself um, any kind of expert in music. I just sort of, uh, I know how to make hand shapes on stringed instruments and make sounds come out of them. And while I watch a lot of music theory, YouTube videos, trying to understand music theory, I don't really. Uh, it, it is, it is a lot of math and, uh, you know, I'm not bad at math, just not, I don't really grasp that kind of math. My, my oldest kid is the, the real math genius in the house or the, the real music genius. I mean, uh, they play multiple instruments and, you know, or we, we went to the symphony last night. That was their first concert, uh, 15 years old. We, we went and saw, uh, Prokofiev and Tchaikovsky at the San Francisco Symphony and they were just absolutely over the moon uh so that that's not the bug that I have I was not born a musician um so I I look at the music as an accompaniment to my poetry yeah that's 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 how I would sum it up and so the lyrics mean a lot to me uh when I when I write music and and I know that that's not necessarily an important component of music for a lot of people I know plenty of people who don't even really listen to the lyrics uh which which is you know a perfectly valid way of consuming music it's just for me um the the songwriting process is the catharsis and then you know putting the music to the words uh, just creates a beautiful piece. You know, I, I, I heard that there was there was a, a tweet that I read that was brilliant that said that um, if art is how we decorate space, then music is how we decorate time. And so I I see music as a way of of decorating time. Yeah, and um, and so is poetry. So is reading poetry. You can capture a moment. Yeah, I really like that. It, it, and I'm, I'm not really big on a lot of quotes because sometimes they don't really help us understanding things. Sometimes they just take one piece of something and make it bigger than it should be. But that's a good mm-hmm. quote in terms of I could see how that would make some sense because it, it has an eternal quality to it. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I, I know that we, we talked a little bit about uh, playing a piece 
that is, uh, I guess, well, I, I won't say especially poetic. I think all of my songs are um, probably equally poetic and, and lyrically important, but this is one that really captured a moment in time that I wrote over the summer. My, uh, my family and I went on this beautiful vacation. It was my husband's parents' 50th anniversary, and uh, they'd never been to Hawaii before. So, and I used to, I used to live on the big island. I lived there for four years and um, it was, it was a gorgeous experience and they wanted to go visit there. So I was back at a place that, you know, sort of still felt like home and, you know, thinking wonderful romantic thoughts about my husband and growing old together. And I, again, drew the parallel between, you know, sort of an eternal love and nature and how we are, um, you know, we, we erode with time and eventually we will just sort of be dust or sand on a beach. Um, but the love endures in sort of a non-physical way. Uh, so this song is a little waltz that I wrote. And let's see if my microphone's working well enough to hear it. Hmm. Can we hear that? Yes. Great. Oh. 
little pebbles on the beach stuffed into my pockets treasures reminding me oh of how the end will be burnished by eternity pebbles in a tumbling sea you and me settle on some sandy shore when we can crumble no more then we will tumble no more All yeah right. so that song <laughs> thank you very much for that we don't get too many uh, uh songs on the show and it really works out creatively when everything else we're talking about it, to me it sounded like sting if he was a girl oh <laughs> that's flattering <laughs> um yeah it's uh <clears throat> it's a little it's a little waltz i've written you know songs in other genres um but that song in particular is uh you know, it, it's an expression of how I want to grow old with my husband and um, and how enduring love can be. Uh, and and again, that connection to nature, you know, I, I wrote it while sitting on a patio looking at the ocean and thinking about the ancient pieces of coral breaking down into sand. And um, it was it was just a, a, a parallel that I drew in my mind. And I'm not sure if anyone else necessarily sees it but um you know the the idea of growing old together and turning into dust might be morbid to some people but <laughs> <laughs> uh you know it is I, as a biologist i'm used to morbid yeah yeah that, that is true well no i really think don't think it's that morbid i really don't because um these days everything uh, is either made or becomes temporary. That uh, it's nice to hear anything somebody talk about something that can that can actually last. I, I know it's not easy, and I know it's uh, not really a, a hallmark card. I mean, any any relationship, whether it's art or marriage, it takes work for sure. Mm -hmm. But um, it's just, just imagine that card. I want to turn into dust with you. <laughs> yeah, that that probably is not going to work out too well. But it does work out in the song, though. And I think it, yeah. I think it would work out in a haiku as well, but yeah, not not, not in the cards. Yeah, something and, and and you know I like the brevity of the song and how it just expresses its its idea and then gets out of there. Um, so you know, and I feel like that was that was why I was really drawn to to aerial chart was uh, the idea of brevity in art um, and you know i don't i don't write a lot of very long things um i'm actually inspired to start writing short fiction again after after this experience i've had so many ideas for short stories all of which are morbid by the way uh <laughs> the, the one that i started writing recently was um uh and, and hopefully i'll i'll get to submit it and so you can read it um is about this this really creepy thought that I had one night there, you know there's a website and I can't remember what it's called right now where you can go and it'll drop you on Google Maps to some random point and um, and have you ever are you familiar with Google Street View yes 
yeah so so you can you can go to anywhere you get ran you know dropped randomly on google street view into to some spot on the map and one night i was laying there uh you know with insomnia like i usually have <laughs> with my husband sleeping peacefully next to me and uh i was sitting up and i was looking at this these random spots and one of the spots where I got dropped was this road on the Mississippi Delta. And I followed it for miles for some reason. <laughs> I just kept advancing and advancing on Google Maps because this road seemed to just be straight as a line, you know, just perfectly uh, bone straight. And, um, and it had no driveways and it was just fields on either side and what looked like you know, a lot of trees and it was very green and lush. The sky was very gray and ominous. And uh, for miles, I followed this road and didn't see a single place to turn. And I just kept thinking, what if I turn around in Google Maps and there's someone suddenly standing behind me? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that's my mind also operates operates in the in the horror realm too, um, and uh, and I just kept thinking, God, that would be such a great story to write. So I finally started writing it, um, and and there are other ideas swimming around too, um, having to do with with some weird way that nature betrays us. <laughs> there you go. That, I'm definitely looking forward to all of that. Um... <laughs> Partly because I don't get as much fiction submissions as I do poetry or even nonfiction, amazingly enough. Ah. Yeah, that's another part of it. And, and of course, I always like to see people do something that's a little off-kilter. I, I really prefer that because I find that there's more honest expression and maybe even more candid revelations when people do things that are a little bit more dark than, than when they're not. I don't know what it is about human nature, but when I get... A flowery story it, it never seems to be very authentic i, I wouldn't mind someone oh. writing something that was positive and honest but you don't get a lot of that you you always get the dark not honest stuff so i you know if if you're looking for a dark and ominous uh, dark and ominous um collection of short stories and, and this is one that really inspired me and i've written um you know i i, I wish that i could emulate the style of these stories. Um, there's a, a short, uh, a book of short stories. It's a short book itself. Uh, it's called The Torturer's Apprentice by John Biggane. I, th I hope I'm saying that right. John Biggane, B-I-G-U-E-N-E-T. Um, and this collection of short stories is just, it's just a trip from start to finish. Uh, they're, and it's really inspired me. I would, I would love to be able to write like this. Um, the, the torturer's apprentice story itself is about a torturer's apprentice who ultimately ends up being at the other end of the torture, uh, you know, medieval torture kind of stuff. Um, but there's another story in there um, about a man who suddenly develops stigmata. Are you familiar with, with I, the I, concept of stigmata? I am. Yeah, so uh, so he starts bleeding out of his hands and feet and his side, and, and he's not a religious person at all, and he doesn't know why he suddenly developed this phenomenon. You know, it's been known to happen in, in 
very ecstatically religious people. Uh, sometimes, you know, interesting phenomenon we talk about in the Catholic Church a lot. When I remember hearing a lot about it when I was a kid. And uh, he sort of inadvertently starts this this cult that follows him, hoping, you know, that people full of hope, basically, hoping that he is some sort of an answer to them. And then all of a sudden, the stigmata goes away. And uh, he's left with this following of people who feel ultimately let down by the fact that this was this was not really the miracle that they were hoping for and you know it it ends in a very touching way and i won't give it away but um yeah so stories like that you know there's there's another story about a couple who loses their child and which is a terrible loss for for a family to go through but uh the the wife begins to interact with what appears to be the child's ghost and uh and the story ends with the the husband who was a complete doubter ultimately being able to see this this child ghost uh and they become a family again (laughs) so happy endings (laughs) for most of these stories but they're they're so they're so grim and uh so strange and you know i would love to write about just the strangest takes on mundane ideas um so, you know, this this idea of, of suddenly having someone appear in the middle of the fields of Mississippi Delta on a road where there are no turnoffs um, is is fascinating to me. And, and the ways that technology can, can sort of bring havoc into our lives like that, too. No no doubt. I, I, it's something I write a lot, a, extensively about, the uh, dark side of technology, so to speak, and you know how it's a, a mixed bag of, um, of blessings and and curses, and that mm-hmm. if we don't really acknowledge that, then uh, you know it, it's a fool's errand to think that it's creating human progress when it also presents other issues that are not necessarily progressive. Yes, every, everyone should watch the Black Mirror. You know, at least a few episodes of the Black Mirror. I feel like they they've done a good job of covering that topic too. Um, the the evils of technology. Have you see, have you ever seen that show? No, I, I've heard about it. I've never I've never seen it, and I, I I've never really felt it's a feel bad show of the year. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I never really felt that that technology is evil. To me, technology is no different than a gun or 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 a knife. It's really about how it's used, and and, oh, and, sure. and, and the responsibility of that on whether it can be something good or bad. Because you know, guns can be just as good as is is bad. On things as well as, as well as knives, so um and you know you wouldn't want to call them and all science. evil or you know even ban them all. Yeah, same thing. I've written about that as well. So I, I see yes. I see a lot of good in that, but I also know that you know there's there's a dark side to it, and we really have to try to embrace both if we're going to be able to lessen one. We see that in the in the world of science too. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about the ethics of science, and uh, you know I I minored. In my undergrad, um, I learned to code through this program called the Pink Program, P-I-N-C. It's San Francisco State. It's funded by Genentech. Um, I live in South San Francisco, so it's you know the home of the biotech industry. And Genentech was founded here, and now we're it's, I can't count how many biotech companies we have in town here. Um, so you know I was I actually got a scholarship from Genentech. I went back to college late in life. I was a uh, uh, I worked in restaurants for 12 years, actually, um, you know, as a server and then bartender and then manager. 
which kind of made me never want to go back to restaurants, which is one of the reasons I decided to go back to school. And I took school slowly um, in my 30s. I was uh, working as a personal trainer, actually. I was a senior fitness specialist and pre and postnatal trainer. And I worked for, you know, several gyms. I actually worked for Google at one point, um, which was which is a great job. That was really fun uh, being a personal trainer for Google and YouTube. Um and, you know, taking school slowly and I minored in, uh, it, I guess you could, it, it's data science and machine learning. The, the, the program that I was in is trying to promote inclusivity in computing. That's what PINK stands for. And uh, so I actually learned uh, how to do a lot of AI and machine learning stuff uh, in this program. And you really learn how, uh, how it can be used for good and how it can be used for not so good. Um, you know, for example, there's, uh, there's a database of, of possible addiction scores. I can't remember exactly what it's called, but the idea is that uh, when you see a doctor, uh, there is a series of risk factors that are in your medical record that, uh, according to an algorithm may make you more or less susceptible to becoming addicted to painkillers and they can base their decision on whether or not to prescribe painkillers to you uh, on this ar almost arbitrarily decided score that a computer came up with, uh, which personally as a, as a chronic illness and chronic pain sufferer, that's, that's another aspect to, to me that we haven't gone over yet, but I, I do have a chronic pain disease. Um, I, I find that relatively repugnant. Um, but on the other hand, I, I myself did a project and it actually, it won fourth place in a, a science competition at San Francisco State where I trained an algorithm to detect and segment the parts of brain glioblastoma. That's a type of brain tumor that's almost always fatal. Um, and based on how the brain tumor looked, it was able to predict the survivability of the patient. So, you know, we've got, we've got ways that it can be used, uh, against us. And I mean, we see it in data mining all the time, that kind of thing. You know, you, you, you think something and suddenly you hear an ad about it, right? Yep. Yep. Um, but on the other hand, you know, in the biotech industry, it's, it's saving lives too, and uh, and really helping to determine, you know, a lot of drug development and treatment options. And um, so I, I, I see technology as a, a tool as well, uh, but one that we should really try to understand the implications of before wide deployment. Um, and, you know, so that's, you know, as a scientist, you really have to think about you know, th this could save lives. We need to get it out there. And on the other hand, um, you know, what what about the downsides? And I think, you know, of course, it, it caused tremendous amounts of debate during the pandemic here. Uh, personally, I'm uh, fascinated with mRNA vaccine technology. It's going to absolutely revolutionize uh, vaccines in amazing ways. And I think that you can only really understand that if you are able to to read the papers on it. Um, well, not necessarily. I think people can understand that without having to read the papers, but when you do get to read the papers on it, you get to realize how cool it is. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to gatekeep that at all, but 
um, you know, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of debate about science going on right now and, um, technology and, and I don't see it as evil. And there, and, and there should, and there should be, it's, it's always been a concern for me because, um, so much of science and prophecy the last 50 years ha has a, a, a lot of money connected to it. And that always is a factor to make things go wrong. And, mm -hmm. and science used to be, and I'm, I'm sorry it's not any longer, but it used to be one of the safest ethical places that you can count on. And now, in many ways, right. science is almost as no less political than, than the guy down the street or the person in Congress, which to me is scary because science is so life-transforming where a politician normally is. In certain ways. Isn't. Yeah. You know, yeah, I... So as a so I, full disclosure, I'm an NIH funded scholar. <laughs> um, my my funding for my graduate work comes from the NIH, um, National Institute of Health. For for those who aren't familiar with that, um, so I do have I have federal funding. I have my my degree paid for um, by the government, and um, you know I I'm I'm really deeply familiar with how those funds are allocated, um, and I'm. You know, on the one hand, they're they're funding people like me, who um, you know are, are they're, they're funding a lot of people who are genuinely curious and genuinely want to help the world with their science. And so I I feel like I need to stand up for scientists, but then at the same time condemn the funding machinery. Um, or not necessarily condemn it, but criticize it reasonably. Uh, I am grateful for funding, but funding is very difficult to get. And where funding goes largely depends on where the public's attention is. So, for example, um, you know, the disease that I have, uh, which is fibromyalgia, hardly any funding is devoted to research in fibromyalgia because uh, it's just a chronic disease. Um, the, the medical institution, you know, the, the scientific world seems to be satisfied with, well, your body is just going to hurt and here, take some Tylenol and, uh, do some yoga and leave it at that. So, you know, there's, there are certain diseases that should get more funding that don't. And then there are other very well-known, uh, sort of popular, I don't know saying popular diseases that's such a weird thing to say um but but you know for example your breast cancer gets a ton of research as well it should uh leukemia lymphoma get a lot of research as well but there are certain other types of more obscure cancers that aren't getting uh the funding that they need to just because they don't affect as many people um so so the powers that be who decide where funding goes, that's, that's really where I find my mistrust. Um, but the scientists themselves, A, aren't making the big bucks. <laughs> I promise you. Um, those, 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 those guys are in sales um, in the biotech industry um, and the, you know, drug research industry. It's, it's not the scientists that are, that are making hand over fist. Uh, it's definitely those in the sales department. Um, the, so I, I want to stick up for scientists here and say, you know, we're well-intended, um, and, and frequently very devoted, very creative people, 
and are trying really, really hard to come up with ways to make the world a better place. And if we could just get more money to do it, we could probably <laughs> depoliticize everything. Um, so I, I would love to see changes happen in how that money is allocated. But again, yeah, you get up into the, the higher echelons of funding institutions and universities and, and it does become political. Yeah, that's always a concern. Uh, I never malign it because we owe so much to it, and and I've always been very curious about it. But I always looked at science as is a knife that we owe so much to it. It does so many important things for us in our lives. But the moment we're not looking carefully, it's gonna cut you. And if you're not doing mm -hmm. it any further, it's gonna kill you. So we have to always keep science at bay about understanding that. Um, as much as you want those involved to, to have some ethical consideration of their work or, or, or to the big picture, you also, as a public, have to also make sure that that's happening. You have to have an eye and you have to be able to make sure that there's there's consequences and there's people asking questions and, and all of that. Because the moment that stuff stops... Oversight. Yeah, exactly, oversight. Because the moment that stops, then it, it runs amok. And, and science is one of the few places in the world you want anything to run amok with because it, it becomes extremely dangerous. It's not like, you know, um, the, the the beef factory goes bad or a lot of people get sick for a while, but it's mm -hmm. finite and something you can handle quickly. It's not the same thing. If science goes bad, lots of people are, are in trouble. Right. You know, because of, Oversight by knowledgeable people, too. Oversight by, you know, I, just, you, we've spoken about, you, you mentioned guns. Personally, I don't think people who don't understand guns should be making laws about guns. Um, you know, that's a there's my controversial take for my, my, my hot take for the conversation. Um, and it's the same with science, with scientific decisions. I don't necessarily think that people uh, who who don't understand uh, the science should be legislating it. Um, and, you know, we've we've seen a lot of that happen recently in the United States. There are people making laws about something, you know, medical that is impacting a lot of women's lives um, who don't necessarily understand the, the biology of anything they're talking about. So I think that um, that's that's where science communicators come in and really need to, you know, we need to have more of them. Um, science communication is a real interest of mine and being able to present scientific ideas I, to lay people because I don't necessarily disagree with that uh, Elizabeth it's just that mm -hmm. we have to also acknowledge as people who love science that more and more it, it encroaches into a moral dimension that people do have yes. and, and to not to not count that those feelings or even those beliefs to me is, is a dangerous thing because then you have them People get reactionary and hurt science rather than absolutely rather than making sure that science is simply not going to places that people either don't want to go to or maybe just not ready for. Yeah, and and people's feelings on I mean, regardless of whether people understand the science of what they're you know of the technology they're using or the treatments they're using or whatever that it does you know the reason it's there is to impact people's lives the reason we do it is to impact people's lives, is to make our lives better. Or I guess at certain times, you know, it can be used, it can be used to make people's lives worse. Um, and it has been in the past. Uh, so 
people are going to have feelings about it and they, and those feelings are valid and everyone's take should be considered in the ethics. That's why the, you know, the ethics of research are a really hot topic. There are classes taught about it. I feel like there should be more classes taught about it. Um, and I feel like a lot of universities should make, you know, ethics and research uh, a required subject for anyone in STEM topic or in, in, in STEM subjects. Uh, and I, just because... I, I agree, but I also notice, and you probably notice it as well, too, that you have a lot mm -hmm. of people in science that they push back on that. They don't want too much ethical inquiry. I mean, they'll give lip service Definitely. to it, but, it, it, but when you talk about, hey, I really, I mean, a good example is, is China right now. Okay, they they, mm -hmm. they have the money, they have the technology, they have the expertise to use the CRISPR technology for genetic manipulation. We know that that technology could possibly literally solve or cure some disease issues. We also know that... Oh, if, I wanted to talk about yeah, CRISPR, yes. If it's used in the wrong way, you could design a disease specifically for a racial group. That's, that's beyond yep. frightening. That's like a bad novel, but it could really happen. Yeah, no, it's... It actually was. Um, have you seen Utopia? Yes, and, and, uh, and oh, okay. I'm aware of the <laughs> I'm aware of the science fiction for for years since I was a yeah. child. But what I'm also aware is I'm now at the door of science, capable of, of doing something like that more than ever before. So it's no longer a, a funny joke in the literature. Oh, it's here. Yeah, now it's now it's like. Well, what's it going to take for someone to do that? Well, a, a nice communist government that controls everybody's lives is not going to have a problem with that because why have a war to kill your enemies when you could just disease them out? <laughs> and there's, you know, there's gain of function research going on right here in South San Francisco. One, one real long power outage, I fear, could unleash a whole host of nasties uh, onto the area if. Uh, you know, if, if things aren't properly contained and that's why oversight is, is so important. That's where regulation does come in because, you know, and, and the intent of, of the government uh, ultimately is what controls that, right. The, the, the nature of the government that um, where, where the research is taking place, you know, we have gain of function research and if it's not properly overseen, you know, it doesn't even take CRISPR to, to do, gain of function research on viruses it's it's terrifying what can be created with it's a, it's without a, even a, the use of new technology it's a real worry because uh, you got the average person out there that they look at they look at covid and they look at the vaccination program and they have questions and there used to be a point in, in our society not even a year ago where even having a question people were shouting you down as some kind of crazy lunatic but it, it's not a lunatic to say that listen you want me to put this drug in my body and you're telling me that you've only had nine months of research and I should be okay. People have a right yeah, to say, I'm... hey, that, that kind of scares me. Now, you have to make a moral decision whether it's important for you to get that vaccination or not, not just for jobs, but, you know, for the health of your own family. I understand people making those decisions because they should. But they should also be able to say, this is not like the polio vaccine. This is not like all the other ones that had massive amounts of research. This is something they don't even have a year's worth of research. Why should I not question it? It's it, It's been such a fascinating thing, you know, emotional journey for me to go through because I, you know, admittedly, at the beginning, I was one of the people who... Um, I think because I knew 
what I know about the research that was that was going on. There there is actually about 20 years of um, coronavirus research behind the vaccines that came out um, when SARS broke out in 2003. Um, you know there are there there are dedicated coronavirologists around the world who have continued research on vaccines for coronaviruses. Um, it's just the mRNA technology was relatively new at the time and it, you know they sort of coincided right at the right time to be able to create these vaccines very quickly without having to use a bacterial or a, a different vector for um, for producing the antigens um, it's you know previously a lot of vaccines were either created with bacterial hosts or using chicken eggs literally um, to, to produce the proteins that go into the vaccines and it's very costly and it's very time consuming. And so, the, you know, there was this perfect storm of skepticism and technology and people had a lot of valid questions. You know, my mother is one of those. She's, um, you know, she, she doesn't feel comfortable doing it. And that's something that I had to learn to let go of and just, um, you know, understand her concerns um, personally, I, I have, have read the research and so I know what has gone into it. Um, but, but technology is accelerating at a rapid pace and, you know, it, it did used to be that, you know, to, to kind of sum up, you know, not, not everybody can do science, everybody, we need people in all walks of life to do all these different jobs. And so sort of as a society, we've agreed that there's a group of people who is going to be responsible for the scientific discovery. And, you know, we trust what they say and trust them to be ethical, but, um, but they aren't always. And there have been horrifying uh, miscarriages of ethics in the uh, biomedical uh, history you know, Tuskegee experiment yeah. <laughs> kind of I'm aware of that. like there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, and, and then there's the, the, the Dangvaxia um, problem in the Philippines. You know, there, there have been a lot of, especially marginalized groups of people who have been horribly, horribly mistreated uh, and have absolutely every right to be skeptical about uh about the technology emerging at a much, you know, at such a rapid pace that we can barely assimilate all of it. Well, one of my um, one of my concerns is what you had raised is something that was not really spoken to, at least in America, the, the American people. No one ever mentioned, I mean, no one. Uh, listen, there's 20 years of other type research behind some mm -hmm. of what we're doing. No one ever mentioned that, and one of the problems. And that I find the messaging to be so problematic because if so many people, if you know, if people knew what had the research that did go into it, and it had been in the public eye this entire time, you know, it kind of it lost funding after SARS disappeared, and so it was just sort of one of those like research that was going on in the background, but it wasn't widely publicized because, you know, we weren't having a coronavirus pandemic. No one ever expected to have a coronavirus pandemic. Every, you know, everyone assumed it would have been an influenza virus. So tons of research going on in influenza, but the coronavirus research is sort of quietly going on in the background. Um, it, but, but, but there is 
there is a lot of research backing it. Um, so we, we do have a good understanding of how uh, not only zoonotic and I'm grateful. Viruses. I'm grateful that that that's the case. Believe me, but I I remember. Yeah, yeah. I clearly remember the beginning, and I clearly remember that going through two different administrations. In each one of those administrations, publicly, when they put that scientist out there, they they literally sound more political than they sound scientific, and the all that did is so bad. It, it made people more paranoid because it's like it makes me. I'm crazy. gonna I'm gonna put this stuff in my veins, and I don't even believe what you're telling me on television. It, it, yeah, it's very. It's it's difficult to criticize people. I know. I have and folks I was on there the show on BioArchive. Um, you know, BioArchive is a is a great website where you can read preprints of um, of scientific literature that's coming out uh, in real time. You know, you can read papers that were published three days ago, that kind of thing. Um, and so, seeing all the research coming out, and I, I avidly read it you know, consumed it as much as I possibly could because I wanted to be as informed as possible because, again, science communication is an art form that I believe that, you know, I, I feel very called to. Um, and I wanted to be able to explain it. I wanted to be able to, you know, allay people's fears and, um, you know, in some way uh, help them understand what what is happening Um and not necessarily buy into the hype, uh, but it's very, very reasonable sounding hype. That's the thing. <laughs> um, I, I empathize completely with people who are like, yeah, you know, why, why am I putting this in my body when I don't even know um, what this disease is going to do to me? Um, having gotten long COVID myself and developing a heart problem from it, I can tell you, you know, it's a real gamble. Um but, but uh, yeah, you know, I I know I know why people are skeptical. I know that we're in a an environment where trusting anything that is funded by a corporation and the government is really a corporation um, at this point is is worthy of being scrutinized. You know, I think that it's smart to question that. Um, but not necessarily to, to shut your mind to it just because you have questions. Um, I have heard from plenty of people who say, well, I don't understand anything that's going on, so I just don't believe anything. I don't think we should stop there. Um, I think, you know, questioning and looking for answers might be hard to wrap your head around the answers, but keep looking and find people who are able to communicate clearly with you in ways that that you're able to understand you know seek out those answers um and don't don't just refuse to believe in something because it's difficult to understand it's kind of kind of reminds me of folks who are like oh, i'm not going to eat anything that i can't pronounce um you know that like hydrogen monoxide is <laughs> Hard to pronounce. I completely agree with you that I, I'd like people to be a little bit more enduring and trying to find things out that, but that's that's not the nature of people in general, and certainly not the nature of a of a typical American, which and, which means that yeah. it, it, the responsibility, not all of it, but at least part of it, on to try to uh, direct them or try to influence them or at least try to educate them, still resides in the scientific community and maybe even the public policy part of it all. And they've, they've done a horrendous job 
making people who I knew personally who normally would believe the government, who normally would trust science, say, mm -hmm. you know, Mark, I, I can't take this stuff seriously. I can't make the decision to put this into my family. I don't know what's going to happen five years later. And I can't even dispute what they're saying because I don't really know either. And I had to make a different decision with the same same thoughts about well, yeah. what have I just done to my family? I hope they're going to be okay 10 years from now because I just yeah. made a decision I thought was morally proper. But the more and more I question it, the more and more I wonder if I – I made it out of fear. I had rather the same feelings yeah. about taking my kids in yeah. to do it. Yeah. And I have personally harassed. I'm proud to say that on my professional Twitter account, I have personally harassed the CDC director more times than I can count about uh, her messaging to the public. You know, it has been Horrendous. such a, um, I could use a bad word here, but I won't. Yeah, it has horrendous. been a mess. It's horrendous. I'm like, and, you're the one in charge. you got to be kidding me. I can I can get, I, I can get clearer explanations from my HOA. I mean, come on. And that's why we need artists in science. We need communicators in science. You know, there there are so many people who are drawn to the scientific community, and unfortunately, their communication skills are not always known for being good. And um, you know, I I I feel like my own my own educational journey. Um, took me from being pigeonholed into, you know, my, my first academic counselor when I first started college in my, you know, when I graduated from high school the first time around, I guess, um, wanted me to do an art degree. And um, I mean, that's how, that's how into, into art and writing I was, but it was really that I just didn't think I could do science. Um, it was, it was that I didn't realize that I could do both. And I wish that, and, and this goes back to our educational system, right? Is, is teaching people that they can do both, that, that both arts and sciences are accessible as long as we are willing to throw some hours at it and um, learn the right way and teach the right way. Um, I didn't have the opportunity to learn the right way when I was younger and I did when I got older and found that I'm able to do both. So, and I, I think that if we had more creative people in the sciences that the communication would be a lot better and that we wouldn't necessarily be in this mess. Um, if, if we made the sciences more accessible to people who are drawn to communication and language and, um, you know, accessing people's hearts in ways that uh, scientific language usually doesn't, I guess. Well, so. I can't, can't disagree on, on that. And <laughs> hopefully going forward, they're going to figure out how to do a better job because I'm afraid that they better. in the future, <laughs> if better. we have some, some other type of virus and people... I think they're gonna they're gonna feel this is like a crying and wolf, we will. and we're gonna it's gonna be a crying wolf situation. You're gonna have even less people want to participate in stuff because they didn't it's believe it the right. first time. And 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 it will happen. You know, pandemics do happen. Um, they happen less. We have better hygiene. We have better sanitation. We have you know all of these wonderful modern conveniences that could go away, um, and and will I foresee go away in large part in, in a lot of the world as as unfortunately climate change progresses we're going to have a lot more natural disasters we're going to have a lot more climate refugees we're going to have a lot more uh, power grid failures and 
you know, the, the conveniences of modern life are going to become a little less convenient for us. Um, and only the, the elite, you know, will have consistent access to a lot of this stuff that um, the, the, you know, much more stratified classes now, you know, we have a lower class and an upper class and not necessarily a middle class anymore. And the lower classes aren't going to have access to that. And so diseases are going to be on the rise, especially mosquito related diseases. Unfortunately, I hate bringing that up, but you know, you, you, I, you, you live where there are a lot of mosquitoes. Oh yeah. Um, so you can relate. Um, yeah, West Nile and, you know, and Clary and all mm-hmm. kind of, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty. Uh, Dengue it, yeah. and yeah. yes, all sorts of, of those types of diseases. So um, other epidemics will happen. You know, that is something I, I don't know when, just like I don't know when the next earthquake is going to happen in California, but I know it's going to happen. Um, and we have to prepare for that. I've got my earthquake kit and we should have preparation for the next pandemic. And unfortunately now, yes, we have so much skepticism and so many people who are just collectively traumatized by this entire confusing experience and are handling it in so many different ways that are all very human, you know, bringing us back to the name of your podcast here, the strength to be human. Um, it, it, it takes all sorts of different types of strength to be human. And unfortunately, um, some, some of that strength requires closing your mind to certain ideas once you've been traumatized, uh, by, by those ideas. So yeah, it'll be pretty bad next time, most likely. Um, and I hope, I hope it doesn't happen in my lifetime. Um, but, uh, but I worry about my kids. Definitely. Yeah. Um, sometimes we have to make decisions, even if we don't have all the answers, just based on that alone. It's what I, it's pretty much what I did. And it's pretty much what I talked about when I spoke with other people, either on the show or, you know, outside the show. I, I never, mm-hmm. I never was one of those people that wanted to dictate anything. Cause I don't believe in that. I really do believe in freedom. A military veteran, so I didn't go out there to fight for the country just to tell you what to do. Mm-hmm. But what I always remind people is that's what the name of the show is about. It's 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 part of my my philosophy is believing that religion and science uh, uh, can be detrimental forces in, in in our life. And you got science that oftentimes don't want you to be human and wants you to be more superhuman, and mm-hmm. you got religion that pushes you to be more supernatural than being human. And I always laughed about it, and that's why I called the show that. It's like you need strength just to be human, to resist the extremes of both of those forces in our lives so that you can yeah. think for yourself. So I used to tell other people, are you afraid of the government? Are you afraid of science? Are you afraid of the disease? Or are you just afraid because now you have to think for yourself because you can't get a reliable answer you know, out of, out of a candy machine or a soda machine or, or a government machine? You have to actually oh, think for yourself and yeah, make your own decision. I go, that's what this. You can't get a reliable answer from anyone. Yeah, I, right exactly. Now. I told her. I said that that's what this is all about. Strength to be human in the end is that you have to be able to say, this is the information I collected, and it looks like I'm still throwing dice, and I'm just gonna have to choose what I think is the best thing, you know, for myself and my family. I, I chose to to go along with this openly with my eyes open that it was better mm-hmm. to try to get some medicine in us to protect us from a virus that could be dangerous, especially since I had children in my own age uh, that were in groups that could be more vulnerable. So I mm-hmm. felt that was a good decision for us. Well, other people, 
they can make another decision that's different. And I'm not going to criticize them about it because it, it could be a very individual thing. You could live in a different Absolutely. household where it might not be necessary. And there are people who, who are unable to get vaccinated as well, um, who are unable to, you know, I, I know a lot of people in the chronic illness community, um, having been in the community myself for, for years now, who uh, have autoimmune diseases or um, are on immunosuppressants or, you know, for whatever reason, are unable to avail themselves of that technology at all. And, um, you know, that, so so that was one of the reasons that led me to, you know, making the decision to go ahead and do it. Um, I, you know, I, I have a mother with two kinds of cancer. Um, she's unable to get vaccinated, but she's also, you know, very skeptical about it. But, um, you know, her life was saved by a monoclonal antibody treatment developed by Genentech. Um, she has lymphoma and um, the, the drug Rituxan, um, is a monoclonal antibody that ended up saving her life, and she's gone through treatment with that multiple times. So she's not opposed to, you know, to technological advances. Um, and I had a grandmother who recently passed away at 102 years old, um, you know, and trying to protect them and the people that I know um, who aren't able to be vaccinated. Um, so that that was a risk that I took upon myself, and you know, everything worked out great, thankfully. Um, but there, there are real risks associated with literally anything, any drug, yeah. any treatment, um, even, even Tylenol, I tell, even I tell, aspirin. I tell people all the time, I, I said, if there's any good benefit that comes out of this whole thing, is it, it's reminding us that whatever we do has a risk. So it, mm -hmm. you have to be able to make a, a choice for yourself and maybe even your family on what's going to be the, the least risky thing and then go with that. Right. I think an adulthood is full of a whole lot of those decisions it, where, exactly. you know, and I, I think we need to come off this fantasy about that science can give us answers. In many cases, only science can do is give us options and we have to come up with an answer with those options about what course of action we want to take. We can't just lay it on some guy in a laboratory. Uh, he was wrong and now I'm in trouble. We, we have to make our own decisions well, too. The whole idea about, you know, scientists being wrong, too, is interesting to me. Uh, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize about, you know, what unfolded during the pandemic here is that people are not used to seeing science unfold in real time. Um, I, I am. I'm used to seeing, again, you know, the hummingbird masks. Eventually a paper is going to come out talking about how much water vapor hummingbirds exhale. Nobody's going to know. All the failures that went into that research before uh, before it was finally successful, you know, and with my own research, it's all questions. It's all questions, questions upon questions, layers and layers of questions. It's questions all the way down. Um, you know, the, the more I discover, the more questions I have. And that is really what science is like in real time. And um, watching the development of the drugs, uh, the antivirals, the vaccines happen here uh without being familiar with that process was terrifying for a lot of people you know seeing how much uncertainty is actually involved in the process and uh you know needing just desperately needing these drugs to come out as quickly as possible but at the same time going well but we also need them to be properly trialed and yeah. uh you know having to 
to skip certain bureaucratic steps, you know, n n as far, to my knowledge, none of the actual scientific steps were skipped, but there were bureaucratic steps that were, were skipped in the approval of a lot of drugs just in order to, you know, move them along. Um, so, you know, everything has been, has been trialed the way it would have been, but, you know, we found out that certain antivirals weren't as effective as we'd hoped. And we found out that, you know, the vaccines be, because of the nature of the virus, it's always going to be an arms race with this vaccine, the same way it is with, with the flu vaccine. Um, it's just constantly evolving so much and it's so immunoevasive that, you know, back, every vaccine is different, right? For every virus, every, everything that we can be vaccinated for, um, be, because every virus is different and it affects the body differently. Um, so there isn't just one uniform way of producing a vaccine that's going to be effective. And most vaccines don't produce what we call sterilizing immunity anyway, which is basically where you, you just take the vaccine or you get sick with the disease and you never get it again. Um, most of them don't, you know, they, they rely on uh, other mechanisms to kind of kick your immune system into gear if you do get infected. So you, it requires infection in order for the vaccine to work. If that makes any sense. Yep. Um, so, so yeah. Um, I wish that I wish that the government had found some way, some campaign that could explain that right at the beginning. And you know, it would have made everyone's lives so much better and easier. Um, and you know, certainly there are always going to be rightful skeptics and everyone should be skeptical everyone should be skeptical you know about religion too you know you're talking about science and yeah. religion yep. i find that balancing science and my spirituality is a very interesting uh you know act of constantly evaluating what my beliefs are in both realms um so so more skepticism would be helpful for society i think but again not to the point of saying well i don't understand it so i'm just not going to believe anything um that's that's where we stop learning uh, yeah so I'm, I'm afraid uh, i'm afraid we're a little closer to that than than we were so i'm 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 hoping i'm hoping and yep. it's always been a hope sure. that this that the pandemic has maybe uh improved some of our awareness about things but you know, I'm not convinced that it has. I think in many ways it might have set us back a bit. Well, for the scientific world, it's come leaps and bounds. You know, there have been very, very exciting things that have developed uh, in in the world of science. But there have also been just, I don't know how many hoaxes. Um, you know, it turns out that ionizing air purifiers are uh, not as uh great at disinfecting air as was originally touted and the government gave schools millions and millions of dollars to improve classroom conditions and a lot of them spent money on these ionizing yeah. air purifiers never, and it turns out that it was a scam yeah, i never believed those things work it, it didn't make any <laughs> sense uh, uh, a piece of metal vibrates and now the germs yeah. are gone it, it's to me it, it automatically sounded like a scam 
I remember my wife asking me to get one. I'm like, I don't even believe this thing works. Well, I'm going to spend this money yeah. on this thing. I get a regular half a purifier. Yeah, I said, how about you get how you get a piece of a, a cloth and some Clorox and just clean up a little bit? I bet you can kill more germs that way. Well, it turns out it turns out the HEPA filtration is great. It's just the the company that was producing these was using a shoebox sized uh, box of air and ionization energy much much higher than the actual device produces, and found some modest results in decreasing the number of germs in the air, and and then decided to just sell this device based on based on very bad science. Um, so, yeah, you know. It, it's it's been it's been a boom time you know it's the wild west right now in terms of technology and science um in so many ways like you know we we came leaps and bounds with distance learning man i got to take two years of college on zoom and it was actually great it was i learned a lot and uh and we found a way to do it you know we we figured it out um but at the same time, my kids, uh, you know, have no social skills now. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a uh, it, double-edged swords everywhere. Yeah, it, it is. Elizabeth, thank you very much for, for joining us. It's definitely a wide-ranging conversation we had here on, on multiple topics, which is great. Yeah. I wish I did more of that with folks. And, you know, whenever it's possible, I think that's wonderful. But I really do appreciate it. Hopefully, you're going to want to come on again one day, maybe later on in the, in the year. Um, obviously, I'm rooting for you to uh, to uh, collate your writing and maybe get a, get a book yeah, or two let's out see there what kind or something. Of I come up with. Yeah, and that, that's going to be exciting to see next, especially if it's a bit dark, which is all right with me. You're definitely great. You're definitely this has a, been wonderful. I, you're definitely a terribly interesting person, and I, I definitely like that on on any of the show, and especially as a, as a writer, that really helps because. I really think that as long as we don't stop questioning things, I don't care what it is that we're questioning, you know, we, we can stay human and we can also stay, you know, in, in, in a mind that's that's just more independent than whatever we're hearing on a radio or a TV show or even on the podcast. See, I, I tell people all the time, we're not here to tell you what to think. We're just telling you to think, please. <laughs> and this is one of the things you can think about. And that's, yeah. that's pretty much been my position all along because I think that that's a more natural and honest one. I also think that it fits more into the democratic framework of this country because when you got people telling you to think this and telling you to think that, and if you don't, you're a bad person, that's when we stray away from democracy and we go someplace mm -hmm. else. And whether it's religion-laced or science-laced, it's simply poison-laced in my opinion because you, you still have to evaluate things. And fine, if you evaluate something and you make the wrong decision – you're responsible for that. Maybe that ends up in a fatal way, unfortunately. But that's what personal responsibility is, is about as well. We should be making sure that more and more we exercise that. Because if we don't, then one day we will have a situation where science is dictating something to you or government is or religion is. Mm -hmm. None of those things dictating to some people ever works. History shows us that. The paths shouldn't cross. Yeah, it, it shows us that again and again and again. I don't know how many examples we need to know. That when these things we get too powerful and dictate stuff, people lose their freedoms and eventually lose their lives because they need to be able to think for themselves and make their own decisions. They're not always going to come up with the right answers. Hell, I think when it comes to the pandemic, especially here in America, there might have been no right answers. We all might have came up with something that, yeah, we all might have came up with something we thought was going to work. 
hell, we don't know if statistically whatever we did was good or not. We don't really know. Yeah. We don't know if our family was was immune to the virus anyway. We don't know if it was so mild that it, it didn't work. We don't know that when we took the vaccination, maybe it just kept us away from us strong enough until we built our own immunity. Mm -hmm. There's just so many things we don't know. But we also do know is that we have to be able to think for ourselves. There's no, in my opinion, there's no good reason to not gather some information. Even in the, the earliest days of the pandemic, there's still enough information out there to make some choices about what was going on. There still was. It's not like you just can say. And be skeptical about your sources, too. Yeah, you, 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 know? you, have, you have to be. And that's what we're going to do many times. I mean, every time someone crosses the street, even if they don't see anything coming, they're still skeptical about until they get to the other side. Mm -hmm. That's how most of life is. But that's what it is to be a free person in a free society. You have responsibility to make decisions, and those decisions might not always work out well. And I, I get worried about my country, particularly, especially somebody who serves in the military fashion, that we want too many things to be wrapped up in a bow, and if it's not, then they, they, they get angry. Life's about mm -hmm. making decisions, and if you don't want to make those decisions, maybe this is not a place for you. Maybe you can go to one of those countries that make them for you. China will make it all for you all day long. You go there, get some great food. <laughs> they have a pretty good health care system, too. And they'll make all the decisions for you. You don't have to worry about it. <laughs> yep. And, and and back to being human, you know, it, it is fraught with uncertainty. And it is always going to be, uh, a, you know, the older we get, you know, the more we get into the complexities of adulthood, the the more complex our decisions are. And sometimes none of those decisions are good. And sometimes making one decision is going to hurt another option or another person and you know ultimately every day is full of ethical conundrums that we you know that that is what it is to be human um to to face the uncertainty and figure out a way not to go crazy with it um you know if i if i laid awake every night thinking about all of the uncertainties um i would literally never sleep and there have been periods of time where i didn't um, and so now, you know, learning to to let go and say, okay, I'm uncertain about this, uh, but I'm going to gather as much information as I possibly can from a variety of sources. I'm going to be skeptical about those sources, and uh, then I'm going to make a weighted decision that is ultimately probably going to have repercussions, and I have to be willing to accept those repercussions. Um, that's a that's a tough thing that a lot of people, you know struggle to wrap their minds around um and and that is the human journey I, that is the human condition i know i noticed that more acutely during the pandemic than i've ever noticed that anywhere in my lifetime anywhere i've lived around the world in fact that i, I was almost embarrassed that i had people uh, that i swear they seemed to be more afraid about making the decision than they were of the virus to me that that's not a good state to be in as, as, as a human. Yeah. That's that state of shutting down, you know, and it's protecting, it's protecting ourselves. I, I have compassion for people who do that, even though I don't think that it's the right place to stop with your decision-making process. Um, but it takes a tremendous act of bravery to say, I don't know. And I'm okay with that. And, um, I understand why trauma might lead a lot of people to not be able to make that decision or to, to be paralyzed in that situation and to just choose to believe nothing or to choose to believe, you know, conspiracies or, 
other things that are not necessarily, um, you know, the, the path to truth. We all have to make and, these decisions. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and they're, so, they're very fraught with, with well, all kinds of, uh, of bad things. I remember sitting down with, with my children before we got the, the shots, and, you know, they had questions as well. And I said, all your questions are valid, definitely. I said, but ultimately you need to know why I'm making the decision. I'm making the decision because as a parent, I'm supposed to be able to mm -hmm. do everything I can to keep you healthy and to keep you safe. Even if that means that I'm putting something in you that could damage you later on. Because at the moment, I don't have that knowledge. But what I do have the knowledge is, is that if you catch this thing, you could get sick and you can die. And I'm also responsible for that as well. So if we're all going to get sick mm -hmm. and die, let's get sick and die trying to do something to prevent it versus not trying to do anything and think it's all going to be okay. Right. That's what my, there, that's how I ultimately made the decision. There are plenty of drugs that come with that risk too. Yeah. You know, even Zolair, for example, I know a ton of people on Zolair, well, about one in 200 people develop cancer when they take Zolair. Um, it's for uh, allergic asthma and, and allergies. You know, so even your allergy medication comes with significant risks, but is it better than, dying of an asthma attack yeah absolutely um so yeah it's uh you know it's it's a poo sandwich <laughs> it, 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 it really is and you have to sometimes just base it on some logic sometimes you even have to base it on some religious faith i don't think there's anything wrong with that i remember when my uh, my uh, my son was was born and they kept telling me that um the health issues were so bad uh, that um we should consider abortion and I, mm. I remember telling the doctor, I said, listen, Whoa, that's, so sorry. Yeah, I, I said, that's not according to our faith. And, and my faith says that if, if the child is going to die, it's not going to come by my hand. It has to come through the natural process. Or, or, or maybe it's responsible for God to kill it, but I'm not going to be the one to do that. It's just not how I feel is the best way of going about that. Well, it worked out. Science was wrong in that particular aspect. And my my, my son was my son was fine. I mean, we had to have a surgery and it worked out, but nevertheless, they were telling me I should do something that turned out wasn't necessary. Mm -hmm. So it just tells you right there that if you stand your ground on many of these things, sometimes they can work out. But once you make a decision that's irreversible, like like if I could have made that decision there, you don't get a chance to redo that later on when you feel regrettable. About right. It. So I I always felt it's better that. You know, I'll let the natural process happen if that's really the case here. Otherwise, I'm, I'm going to just stand firm that I'm going to deal with it and, and hopefully we can handle it and, and hopefully this is going to work out. That's all really you can do. Yep. That That is absolutely all we can do. And, uh, you know, I'm so grateful for this beautiful experience of living on Earth as a human and seeing all of the complexities of it and, um, you know, what listening to watching and reading and listening to history um i i know that the human condition has been relatively similar for you know throughout the ages here it's always been just sort of fraught with difficulty and um hard decisions and it you know that's one of the reasons that i avidly consume history is because um it always reminds me that um, the human condition has been largely the same as it is now. You know, not much has changed. And, uh, yeah, I noticed. And, <laughs> yeah. I talk about that a yeah, lot. You know. Unfortunately, I, I wish it was had changed. I, I know we were mentioning that we should have an artistic person in, in some of the science stuff, but I wonder if we just need a, 
a, a general team of historians on most of these things because it seems oh, gosh, to me absolutely. it seems to me that the refrain that be careful you don't repeat history. We could learn history. a lot from the plague. Yeah, if you just be careful to not repeat history, we should hear that more often than not. That might that might slow people down from just doing yeah. the same stupid thing we did 50 years ago in a different manner, but in the end it was the same type of choice. And that's really what I always worry about is, is that we, we repeat things because we haven't learned anything. I think we learned a lot from the pandemic, but unfortunately I, I think a lot that we've learned was probably the wrong things. The, I'm not sure it's going to stick too much. Yeah, well, I, we I, did I, just, I just think that we, we learned too much of distrust and we learned too much about mm-hmm. paranoia and, and we learned too much about... I think about, there will be a lot of uh, 2020 hindsight at some point. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping so because uh, I, I don't don't believe that we need to ignore it. Be, that, that that's an answer. I think it'll be late. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want to ignore stuff because that's never an answer. But I I do think that overreacting is never never a, a smart decision too. But yeah, this is not a country you that's know, pretty good in the middle. We seem to always be on one extreme. There or was another. no good solution. Actually, there was a good solution. I'm gonna say it. I'm gonna say it. Here's my hot take. Here's my controversial opinion. The good solution would have been to pay literally everybody a living wage to stay home for two months right at the beginning before it even spread. And if every country that had cases had done that, then we wouldn't be in this position. <laughs> but again, hindsight is twenty twenty. Yeah, and I, so, I don't think that's going to be yeah. a, They wanted people to stay home, but they didn't want to pay them to do yeah, it. Yeah, that's probably not going to be a, a, a more practical one, unfortunately. Even though Can't I, tell people to stop working. Yeah, but I do think that I know in the case of my own children, when they ask me about what, what, what's your plan, what we're going to do, because they know me. I, I'm one of those people that I always have a plan for something. I'm an Italian, and we, we kind of have a, a plan for everything. Um, yeah. I told them that my plan was, because I believe this is the only thing that was a surefire way to, to help protect them, was is that they were going to sanitize everything and wear that mask for a long period of time when they went to school, because our schools decided to mm-hmm. go. Even though I decided not to, to keep them there, I said, "Yeah, you're gonna go, but mm-hmm. I'm gonna give you all this equipment and, and these and all the the kits for you to bring with you. And every day, this is what you're gonna practice to do." And and my my children never got COVID, and it, and that's there was smart. all kinds of kids everywhere getting it. And I'm like, you you know Simple why the sanitation? Yeah, I said a lot of this had to do with sanitation, uh, about you wiping down the desk and your seat, about making sure you're sanitizing your hands. This is all in, easy equipment that I can give you as long as you're willing to do that. It's probably going to protect you more than even the vaccination I got you. And I, I still don't know to this day if that worked more than not, but I do know that my children are one of the few people in my community that never got the COVID. I will tell you that, um, yes, science, science research now does back up that, um, yes, that is probably um, a really large factor. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I practiced the same sanitation and I got it twice, but you know that was like the the members of my family didn't get it nearly as badly as I did that that's part of my physiology I have you know I, I'm very susceptible to catching upper respiratory diseases so um I didn't I didn't fight it off quite as well um as as other people do uh but you know my my kids still practice masking and um, probably will for the rest of their lives. Unfortunately, I think that there's a lot of 
anxiety and neurosis attached to it now for my kids. Well, they're, they're not much um, on the masking anymore, and that's okay. But they they've been religiously taught on the on the sanitizing. We're working and, on like know, they're really good about that situations. Yeah, they've been good about it. that. And I told them, I said, this is a good, healthy, uh, lifelong habit to have. To, to well, you know, and when you're sick, why not? Why not do it? You know, it protects everybody else. When I get a cold, I'm going to do it now. You know, I don't want to be out in public coughing. Yeah. And, you know, if, if I have to go to work, I'm, I'm going to. It's basic sanitation and it's been good practice. They found that it worked during the, the flu pandemic. And, you know, it's just uh, it's just an added layer of protection. And the more layers you add, the the more protected you're going to be. You can't rely on just one thing. We got to diversify, you know. Um, so, so whatever you can do, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, staying out of really crowded places during peak cold season or, um, you know, getting on the airplane with a mask on, um, just to, just because it doesn't really hurt you not to do it or it doesn't really hurt you to do it. (laughs) Um, you know, I think that, I think that we learned a lot of lessons just about general public health and that's great. Um, and I hope that I hope that those lessons stick. I really do. They might, they might be one of the. They might be one of the few things less. that might stick, and I and I'm I'm hoping to at least see that out of That'd be great. out of all of this. All right, folks, uh, that is definitely a, a wrap here. Uh, Elizabeth <laughs> Mathiason, thank you so much for being on here. Sci- oh, thank scientist, you. writer, really cool chick. I mean, you, you can't get any better than that kind of combination there, folks. So I'm really happy to to be able to. To bring her out there for everyone to talk to and, and to, to see, to read, especially on Aero Charts. So definitely check out her work. I'm sure there'll be more to come in, 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 the, in the near future here. I'm definitely uh, waiting on that for that as well. And, and I'm hoping one day we'll have a book out for her as well too. And then we'll be able to talk about that. Spooky stories and poems. Yeah, you, nothing, nothing wrong <laughs> um, with that. I'm like, I like that. Sounds like a good combination. Yeah. Thank you so much. You this it. has been great, and I really appreciate you helping me put my voice out there finally. It's it's what I do, believe it or not. So I'm I'm glad as well. Grateful. God bless. Grateful. You have a great weekend, and thank you very much for joining you us. You take care. Take care. Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by visiting our sponsors at www.strengthtobehuman.com or purchasing an ebook at www.somapublishing.com.